This morning we are continuing this series we started several weeks ago entitled, What Do You Believe? Faith and Culture. Today we're reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and you'll find it on page 1840, 1840 of the Church Bible. For those watching at home, or perhaps you're traveling this week, or maybe at the beach for the last time over this, as the summer period comes to an end, it would be helpful if you had opened a Bible on your lap and joined us as we study this passage this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. And Paul writes these words, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Amen, and we trust that God will indeed bless this reading from His Word. Normally, in a Sunday morning, we will be looking at Scripture and asking, what does Scripture teach on the topic of prayer? Or sometimes we'll talk about, what does it teach on the character and nature of God? What does it teach about living out your faith? And this morning, we are looking at seeking to understand the culture we live in because we're convinced as a congregation that if we're to live in a 21st century cultural context, it's helpful, helpful for us to understand that context and swim sometimes against those cultural currents in order for us to live out our faith with credibility and authenticity. And so this morning, we're going to take a good bit of our time understanding the culture we live in. And as we move towards the end of our study, we're going to come back to 1 Thessalonians and ask, how does that apply to us in the week that lies ahead? Studying culture can be both exciting and challenging all at the same time. And this morning, we're asking multiple questions about what the culture teaches about who we are. What does it teach about? What is it that defines us? What is it that is important about our identity? And in today's culture and society, in the 21st century, culture shapes and influences and determines almost every aspect of our life, whether we are conscious of it or not. And you will see some of the themes we are about to look at pop up 
in sitcoms, on television. You'll see it arise in social media. You will see it in cinema. You will see it in popular literature. You will see it at the theater. You will see it everywhere. And so when we begin to wrestle through about understanding the culture and society we live in and why it's important, it's a little like asking a fish to define water. Because the fish will look at you and say, well, it's just there. It shapes and determines much of who we are. It's just there. But it is healthy for us to grapple with what does the culture teach about who we are, what is it that defines us, and what is important about our identity. Now, it's that focus on identity formation that falls into two categories. When you think of cultural identification, you have a sense of identity and a sense of worth. And to help break that down, let me explain what I mean. And I'll do it in a series of questions. When you think of what is a sense of identity, you are asking, what is the real you? What is it that is true about you? Who are you in essence? What is it that defines you? What is your sense of self? What is the core you? And we'll be touching on many of these when we look at identity and what it is. We'll also be looking at a sense of worth, because it's one thing to ask who you are, what defines you. It's another to ask who validates who you are and what you do. Who gets to tell you if you are living up to your ideals? Is it the culture? Is it family? Is it friends? Who is it? And so we'll be touching on all of that this morning. Now, in a previous generation, you would, if we could summarize, probably up to the late 1990s, the previous generation, validation came from family, came from friends, came from community, sometimes came from country. And it was often defined in this sense where you would subjugate your own or surrender your own feelings, your own desires in order to serve someone else, in order to serve parents or friends or community. And people would say, oh gosh, isn't she an outstanding lady? She does so well when she serves in the PTA. Isn't it amazing how we see him looking after his elderly parents? And that's where affirmation and a sense of identity came from. Before the year 2000, it was, and it's not quite as clear as that, but for discussion's sake, let's say that, identity validation came from family, friends, community, country, and so on. But since 2000, there has been a significant and accelerated rate of cultural change, whereas today, in what's often called by academics a postmodern culture, that postmodern culture is not determined or defined by family, friends, country, and so on, but rather contemporary culture is asking you who is, and we touched on this a minute ago, the real you. What is it that defines you? 
What is it that's true about you? When you take away everything else and strip away all aspects of your life, who are you? What is your sense of self? Who is the core you? Your sense of self is the most important thing about you. And in essence, it means this, that it's no longer family, friends, and community that validate or determine who you are, but you determine who you are. And you determine who you are by looking deep inside. You define yourself. And often, you do that on the basis of how you feel, what your emotions tell you, by self-exploration and self-expression. And more than that, not only do you get to determine who you are, but family, friends, and community have to celebrate who you are, rejoice in who you are, because after all, you're special. You're no longer about fitting in and serving in a sense of duty. Now you're all about inner desires. You get to determine who you are. You get to define reality for you. It's not about physical reality. It's not about logic. It's not about standards, because after all, standards and values are social constructs, and you get to determine who you are. And that's that cultural shift we see. And in fact, we could say culture now encourages you to believe that the formation of your own identity and self-worth is shaped by how you define yourself you are determined by your deepest desires. Duty has fallen away. Desires have come to the foreground. The expectation is that you will be honored for who you are and how you assert those desires, especially against claims from outside groups like family, friends, and community. The culture and society around you must align themselves with you. You no longer fit into them. They must align themselves with you. Now, that's where we are as a culture. You're saying, okay, Richard, I think I get it. I can see some moments of truth in there, but give me an example of the kind of thing you mean. Well, let me try and do that. You remember the children's movie Frozen? It's a great movie, very cute, very well done, was extremely popular, maybe 12, 13 years ago, if I have my timeline right, and it uh, focused on Elsa and Anna. Elsa was a princess in Norway, and she had a remarkable gift. It came from an old Norwegian fairy tale, and in essence, if you remember, that if Elsa touched any inanimate, inanimate object, it would freeze. And so Elsa was taught by her parents, always wear her gloves, always be considerate of family, friends, and community, and think of them first. You're a princess. You have a sense of duty towards your country. But halfway through the movie, there is a major cultural shift. And the cultural shift is heard in the words of the hit song from the movie. And the words, some of them, not the whole thing, I couldn't print it all out for you, 
But this is Elsa singing, and she says, and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. That's what was going on. I will determine what's right. I will determine what defines me. And in a previous generation, 60 years ago, John Lennon was crying out at the height of his career, help, I need someone, help, not just anyone, won't someone, please, please help me. A world of a difference, looking for help, but now over here in post-modernity, I don't need any kind of help. I will be my own person, do my own thing, and I don't care what family, friends, and communities say unless they're validating me and supporting me and rejoicing with me. And so you see the tension between an older culture and an emerging culture. Now you're saying, okay, Richard, I've kind of followed you so far, but I wasn't expecting a lecture this morning on postmen post-modernity and transitional cultures, but you also see it in simple ways. Popular therapeutic advice says things like this, don't let anyone tell you who you are. You should not let anyone else determine your worth. You're independent. You stand on your own two feet. Now, that's not bad advice at times, but when an entire culture moves it towards an extreme situation where you are forced to celebrate, encourage, and rejoice with others when you disagree with them, you are inevitably in trouble. Now, let me pause a second. And having described a postmodern culture, let me do a brief critique. And my first concern would be this, that whenever you say that I and I alone is an individualistic, monological description of identity, I will determine who I am. Not community, not family, not friends. I will give up nothing for anyone else. It's me and me alone, and my feelings will determine who I am, how I'll be satisfied, and where I find fulfillment. And then you have this problem. Use your imagination. Tony is 34 years old. He's been working for the same electrical engineering company for the last 10 years. He's had several promotions. He's had his third interview for a senior position in the company, a significant rise in responsibilities, but also in salary. And Tony is entirely fulfilled in his job. That's where he gets his satisfaction. That's what defines him. That's where he is most fulfilled and comfortable. But the problem is this. Tony has fallen in love with Diana, and they've been dating for the last 13 months, and it's becoming pretty serious. 
And as their love for each other grows and develops, and they're thinking about getting engaged, and they're thinking about married, Diana has had a conversation with Tony and said, Tony, under no circumstances am I moving to Dallas with your new job. I like Greenville. I've settled down here. My family is here. And that individualistic identity, that fulfillment is found in me and my decisions, and I will define myself, is now clashing because he has two sets of emotions going on. The emotion to love and be engaged and married and have a family, along with overwhelming demand for his career. These are not new emotions, but in a postmodern generation, you're stuck with, I have all sorts of emotions, and I cannot determine which one is right. And he does not and cannot live only for himself, because now he's in a relationship with Diana. Now, let me give you another illustration. The, the illustration of a 38-year-old dad and dad is married, has been for the last 10 years. He has an eight-year-old son and a six-year-old daughter. Can you imagine dad sitting down with the eight-year-old and six-year-old and saying to them this? This relationship is no longer working for me. I'm no longer fulfilled in this relationship. I want to define who I am. I want to define myself through exploration and self-expression. And I don't want to give up my desires to serve you anymore because I will determine what fulfills me. I will determine my deepest desires. I will define who I am, and you're not doing it. And what's more, I expect you to celebrate and rejoice in my decision. I'm out of here really? Really? That's what happens when you live in a culture that is dominated by self. And then, not only is it dominated by self, you have the self-contradictory movement that says affirmation and external validations are considered crucial because you want relationships, but at the same time, you don't really, because it's all about me and my and mine. Now, how do we, from a Christian perspective, respond to the dominant cultural context we find ourselves in. Let me encourage you to use your imagination once again. We've touched on identity, and we've touched on validation coming from family and friends and community, and then in a postmodern culture, it's all about me and my and mine, and I'm validated in and of myself. Now, if your validation comes from in and of myself, you are on thin ice. Let me illustrate. Use your imagination once again. You're now 19 years old. You are a state champion at tennis. You have played tennis most of your life. You love it dearly. You went to college on a tennis scholarship 
You've just won again for the third year state championship, and your young brother, who's three years younger and absolutely idolizes you, comes to you after winning the state championships and says, that was amazing. I couldn't believe that backhand in the third set. You caught him off guard. It was just spectacular. Well done. You're going to smile and say, it's my wee brother, but it's nice to be complimented nonetheless. But if your coach comes to you and says the same thing, and says, I couldn't believe what you pulled off in the third set. That backhand, the footwork was incredible. Clearly, all of your preparation and training and moving to the next level in terms of your fitness has paid off. It was spectacular. I can't wait to see you go on from here. I suspect the validation from the coach means a great deal more than the little brother. And then what happens if one of your great tennis heroes approaches you after that game and says, excuse me, I was sitting in the stands today. I have a couple of nieces who are playing in one of the other games, and I couldn't help watch you. And this individual is so good, he won U.S. Open and Wimbledon two years in a row. And you're a little tongue-tied speaking to him, and he says, I can't believe what you did in the third set. That backhand and the footwork, and clearly you've been working hard. Let me give you a card. My trainer's details are on there, and I think he could help you. I'll tell him to expect your call and see if he can't fit you in next week, and let's continue the connection and see if we can't help. Now, that kind of validation really means something else. We are living in pretense if we think validation only comes from ourselves and our hearts. Family, friends, community, those who love us matter. And the individualistic I and me and mine will end in trouble because we are created for relationship. That's why Tom was having such a hard time with Diane. That's why when affirmation is given by those we respect means so much more. And here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is saying this. We see it in those opening words. We instructed you how to live in order to please God, because in the first three chapters, he's talking about what it means when you are transformed by the love and grace of God. He's talking about what it means to be drawn into a relationship with Him. He's talking about what it means to have have your heart transformed and your identity shaped and determined by Him. And if you are struggling with validation and struggling in your faith, and it's been a tough couple of weeks for you, please remember this, that you could not receive any better validation when Scripture tells us that when He looks at His children, not only does He hold them in the palm of His hand, not only does He transform them, heart and mind and soul, and draw them into a relationship with, themself, with Himself, but each and every day He says, I love you. 
It's not just that I like you. I love you with an everlasting love. And here is God in all of His transcendent majesty and glory and grace saying, I love you. His love is so much greater than we can ask or imagine. Infinity cannot hold it. Depravity will never exhaust it of its depth. And in His transcendent majesty and glory, He says, I love you. Fulfillment, validation, satisfaction is found in a relationship with Him. That's why Paul is saying, now live it out. Live it out. And whatever else you find yourself involved with this week, however frustrating, however distracting, you can come back to this central foundational truth that He loves His children, and validation doesn't come from culture, whether it be an old pre-modern culture or a post-modern culture. It comes from Him. And as you go into this new week, do so, thankfully, with gratitude, delighting in His love for you. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank You that Sunday by Sunday as we gather in Your presence for worship, we sense Your presence and Your tender touch. We ask that this week You would reach in our deepest affections, draw us to You, that once again we would be overwhelmed and equipped and enabled by Your love to live out our faith with authenticity and credibility in this 21st century culture that others might see in us Your love and Your grace. Bless us, please, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.